This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, September 7th, 2023. Rebecca is out in Italy doing Italy things, but I'm pleased to have Jennifer, Jen Northington, join me on the show today. And we're just doing a little pre-flight checklist. And they're very Northington-friendly topics at the top of the, <laughs> top of the list today. The only, one I, the, the only one I was really interested, well, I thought of you specifically, because I, I think it was a, no, there was a piece this week and a piece last week about blurbs. I don't know why yeah. the, the literary internet was on blurbs all of a sudden, but there's a piece mm-hmm. in Esquire that we're going to talk about. Um, and, and Jen, you've done a couple of books through traditionally published stuff, and you have blurbs on a book that came out recently, so we're going to talk all about that. Before we get into that, some things to let people know about. Uh, first edition, the It Book Knockout round of September went live on Wednesday. Rebecca and I did that. I also had uh, Professor Jenny Nuttall, the author of the new book, um, uh, Mother Tongue, The Surprising History of Women's Words, on the second segment of that. Hmm. Uh, let's see. So that's available to anyone now. Rebecca and I did do the fall preview draft for the Book Riot Patreon. So if you've been on the fence or you are a Patreon member and that's enticing to you, go check it out. Um, the fall always is, it's Christmas time. Um, for the world of books and reading, for new releases coming out. Mm -hmm. Go check that out. Rebecca and I also have now taken over authorship of Book Rights Today in Books newsletter, which is our daily news newsletter, where we pick a few stories that are making the rounds on the interwebs, say a little something about them, and it's an easy way to keep up. Sometimes it's it's actually... I think I linked to all of these stories, maybe not one, um, <laughs> over the course of the last week. So if you're interested in the preview of what might come down the pike, Jen has been editing me, so she's seen what's come down the pike <laughs> a little bit there, too. I think those are all the things. Also, TBR, which is our book recommendation service, mytbr.ceo, uh, .co, not CEO. Um, it's going to be the holiday season here quicker than you can say Bob's your uncle. Mm. And you might start thinking about who in your life would be a good gift to give the gift of TBR. There's a couple different ways you can do that. There's annual, there's one-off, there's recommendation only, there's the books themselves. People get to um, fill out a personalized reading profile about the kind of books you want. And we have real humans that read books and recommend them, write recommendations. Mm-hmm. So go check out my tbr.co. Jen, is there anything? I'm gonna t- we're going to talk about your book here in a little bit, but you're always, you, you and Sharifa do... Um, SFF, yeah. So yes. if you're interested in science fiction, fantasy, go check out over there. We're going to get a little bit of science fiction and fantasy here down when... Well, let's cry about this first. Let's get it okay. out of the way. Actually, we're going to do it. We're going to do a first ad break, and we can share together, cry, and then we'll get back into it. So okay. right here in a minute. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, Jen, we have to wait another eh, five months for Dune yes. 2 here. I have to admit to be pretty bummed about that. I mean, the strike, I want all the people to get yes. the dollars and do their thing. So I'm not going to be one of those cry because it's late, but I understand why. Yes. I'll say I was disappointed. I'm looking forward to it. I think Dune, the, the first one, has grown in estimation for me since it came out. Where oh. are you on Dune right now? Well, that's interesting because, you know, we talked about that for Adaptation Nation and I felt like it was visually perfect, but lacking depth in terms Mm -hmm. of character portrayal. Like it felt like almost a flattened version of the novel to me. Uh, So I was left a little cold. I mean, there's no denying that the, the... the acting was very good, yes. and the visuals are, you know, unparalleled. I mean, just stunning. Uh, they clearly spent bajillions all of the dollars. dollars. All, all the of, sand. Literally they all made, of the dollars. They probably made some like bes- some bespoke CGI sand program. Right? I wouldn't be surprised if they it's did something wild. Like that. I mean, it's wild. So, you know, I, it was a feast for the eyes, if not for the soul, for mm. me. Uh, and so I found myself actually forgetting that Dune Two was okay. coming. So you're not crying. because you're I I'm curious, but I am yeah. you know I'm super curious. But I um, j- I did uh, oh, yeah no. I don't know I know that's okay. I when you put it on the agenda, I was like oh yeah, and then mm. I was a little sad because it was cool, and I was hoping that you know. It's a lot of stage setting for the initial installment, right? Like they had to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of getting people into this world. And because the acting was so good and the visuals were so good, I'm hopeful that the second one can stop having to info dump and can start like actually. That's that's exactly my, that's exactly where my hope comes from is because the structure for it is, is great. Like the the groundwork is all there for it to be tremendous. And I have to say, the first full-length trailer I saw is maybe one of the great trailers I've ever seen. I mean, maybe I'm just I'm stoked to do it. And the other thing, and lastly, and this is more of a logistics one, is I watched the first Dune at home. I want to go see that as a theater. I've been yeah. with the kids and I and Michelle. We've all been going to the movies this summer. We've had a great time. I'm like, oh yeah, I can go see this on a huge screen and have that yes. kind of visceral thing too so we just have it to look forward to yes in the spring i do i do i do worry is not the right word it feels like we may be enjoying the last fruits of the extremely bananas spending money on sci-fi fantasy adaptations with wheel of time that's coming hundred percent you know I think I think we're going to look back on this, and we knew it couldn't last forever. I called the yes. peak at this like three years too early, but it didn't feel <laughs> like it was sustainable. Yeah, and it, this feels like one of the last remnants of this era, this Dune franchise, Wheel of Time, I guess House of Dragon, and then um, the Lord of the Rings thing, which I can't think. Rings of Power. Yeah, That's, Rings of Power. Was that last? Was that just last fall? All that was happening at the same time is unbelievable. Yeah, it was wild, and you know, like 
this is like the studios were dumping money into this instead mm-hmm. of you know paying people fair wages <laughs> right. uh, or making and, money I guess or both, making both money exactly like both either um, and so it, I mean it was never sustainable unless you know they they got back all of that money doubled which they were never going they to were never gonna do they were never they gonna were do never that gonna so yeah so anyway we'll we'll check in with that when it comes um uh a little bit later you're a huge wheel of time fan that might be putting it lightly i've heard good things <laughs> about season two you, you're you're gonna dive back into it soon so i'm gonna yes. I i'm gonna once I am fully back in order, and maybe some night where the the kids are busy, I'm going to dive in to get back into Wheel of Time. Yeah, I will say, well. I I rewatched season one, and I liked it even more the second watch through. Did I you? mean, there's some mm. yeah, there's some clear problems towards the end where COVID you know messed up yeah. their shooting schedule, and yeah. you know made they lost they got budgets cut and all of this jazz. So you know it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but actually on watching it. The second time I enjoyed it even more. So, mm. yeah, I have, I have, I'm like high hopes for season two, but also, you know, I want these writers and actors and set yeah. people to get what they deserve uh, for right. these works that we enjoy so much. So, I do wonder, I, I, can't, I can't believe, I don't know, I haven't read too much about the Dune 2 sort of uh, rationalization for the move. It's hard mm. to believe they had a lot more post-production work to do because this was like six weeks ago. It was supposed to come out in a, like early November or something. I'm guessing they're like, we need Zendaya and yes. Chalamet. We, I mean, we, this is be, this is silly to to go on. Let's let's wait for a time when we can do the full prep, the full court. That's press. right. They because again, they spent so much money on it, and they can't do the marketing that they would like to do without the actors who are on the picket lines. As yeah. they should be. So if they want to make back that money, they have they to wait. Yeah. yeah. And Oppenheimer and Barbie, not to make everything about that because mm. I'm kind of over that dynamic, except that they got, I mean, the strike happened right as those movies were being released, yes. but they had the three months ahead of the time where the marketing for both of those movies was off the chain. Yes. And they were out there doing yeah. interviews and all the things. And it was enough where it basically de facto, they got a full publicity cycle. Yes. I, I just don't think you can... If I would be, I guess what I'm saying, if I were them, I'd be doing the same thing. If I'm, if I'm Denis or I'm anyone over there, I'm like, what are we doing? We, right. we have to delay until we can give our best shot at this. Yeah. Also rumors that um, Denis is like, oh, I might have a third movie. So I don't I, know I, what I, to expect. I read that when they were talking about number two and I was like, yes. how can you not already know? Like if you've already mapped out number two how could you not know if there's a number three like how much yeah, of the you story are you telling this. how much of that was lip service how was that much yes. i guess people not wanting to feel like they were going to get the clip i mean it was as bad of a cliffhanger as maybe it could have been what was the movie yeah. that, that came out that was the real oh this the new um spider-man sony movie where it's like a mm. real cliffhanger in the middle maybe mm. they didn't want that part one thing you're right. thinking the whole thing I have to say, once we're through the the first Dune book, my relationship to the Dune franchise falls off a cliff in terms of my Same. knowledge and experience. So I, I don't yeah. know Dune Messiah. I, I don't nope. know any of this stuff. Worms of Dune, Seven Elevens <laughs> of Dune. Um, there's a whole there's a whole giant uh, world coming there. Okay, we're gonna take we're gonna go back to the world of books and reading all the way from worms to other kinds of parasites, and that's the world. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> It even sounds like even the word itself has a. It feels pejorative, the blurb, uh, as mm. a word. There's a piece in Esquire, um, 
by Sophie Vershbow. Uh, the subhead, the, the title is A Plague on the Industry, Book Publishing's Broken Blurb System. Some nice alliteration in there. Looking, Taking a deep dive on the economy of blurbs, what it takes to make them, how much they seem to be reviled, and, and, to, and to do a meme from about 12 years ago, um, they still can't quit you to blurb right. at the same time. You've been in the blurb soliciting business of yes. getting them on the cover for the general reader, I don't know that there's a couple of lines here from Esquire that might be worth getting into. I think just as this is an excuse to turn our attention to the humble blurb um, and to think about what it is and isn't. Um, Jen, what can you tell us from behind the scenes of making the word sausage about yeah. what it takes to get blurbs onto a book? So when you are in the marketing and publicity phase of a book, which generally is after you've done probably a first pass or and or galleys have been created. It depends mm-hmm. on, you know, who you are, like how much of editing they're actually going to do. But um, they send out, you know, review copies to journalists and booksellers and other authors. And they that is separate. That's like review coverage. And then there are the blurb asks. And I personally sent a bunch of those. Sharif and I both sent a bunch of them for Fit for the Gods. Um, I was talking about it with, you know, my fellow writer friends because I was like, what is the what words can I use in this email that make it clear that I am putting the least pressure on this possible? Because, you know, if you read this piece Uh, on Esquire and all of these quotes from people and like no shade here this is just the reality so many people are so bad at boundaries like they get an email and they can't say they feel like they cannot say no to the point where even if they don't like it they'll blurb it or they'll pretend to have read it if they haven't because that's the amount of pressure that they feel when they receive these requests and some of that pressure is peer pressure you know and some of it is real um you know if your agent is telling you you like have to blurb this one then you probably are going to do what your agent is telling you um so i think that you know but also it was funny i stumbled across a conversation it happened on my lunchtime i was looking at blue sky and john scalzi and nk jemison and charlie jane anders were talking about this piece and Mm. scalzi and jemison were like i don't understand what the problem is like yeah i do not blurb 95 percent of the books that people request blurbs from me for i only blurb the ones that i read like and of course it's about who you know that's true of any industry and they were very like i don't understand what the issue is here um and charlie jane was like well you know i just don't have time like i literally don't have time to blurb anything at this point because it does take so much time which is true you have to you know theoretically if you're doing it the ethical way you have to read the entire book or at least most of it to functionally write a blurb um and so you send these emails and if you're me you try to make them like i i'm like i know you're busy please yes. you know no pressure give them a graceful I, no chance a hundred i i'm is. like building in a no for mm-hmm. them and then i'm like but you know if you have the time and interest like can i send you a copy for blurb consideration you know would you consider reading it with an eye to blurbing and then on um, if somebody says yes which is like you know 
the biggest like relief you've ever felt because if you don't get a yes you have to send more of those emails <laughs> um, right and then you know you're like racking your brains uh and then they say yes and then you have to tell them when you need it by which is never as much time as you want it to be um in some cases very short timelines in other cases much longer but it's it's because you know what you're asking i'm asking you to read this book and say nice things about it. like obviously i'm asking you to say nice things about it you know um, we did a mix of authors that we had worked with or knew personally, and then authors that our editor and or agent had access to. So if you look at that, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't see any point in lying. Like if you look at Fit for the Gods, there's uh, a Sarah McLean blurb, which we got because I've worked with Sarah for years mm-hmm. and she's incredibly kind and supportive. There's a Victor Laval blurb because Sharifa and I have both, you know, interacted yep. with him in the past. And he is also an incredibly kind human being um, who said yes to us. And then Jane Peck, who wrote The Verifiers, which I loved, side note, uh, is, is also she her editor is my editor. So that's how that one got passed along. And same for Jenna Rose Northcott. That also is, we share an editor. And so that was the connection. Now, I truly hope and believe that they actually read it and liked it, that they didn't just feel pressured to say yes, because we share an editor. But like, that is the truth. Like, that is the God's honest truth. That's how those blurbs came about. Um, and I, I, all I can say is that, you know, like so much of publishing... The boundaries are the issue here because publishing takes advantage of people with who don't feel like they can have firm boundaries around work. Mm. Like publishing as an industry relies on a huge amount of unpaid labor. Editors don't read on work hours. Like editors read the books they're editing at home. Right. Like that just is a basic example, you know, and yeah, any, any author who agrees to blurb a book either has to make something up or actually read the book. Um, and so and uh, and it's also true that a disproportionate number of those requests go to the same authors because everybody wants a best selling author right. on the cover of their book. I will tell you, I asked one best selling author who I will not name. And they they turned me down with a very I like I want to print out this email and hang it on my wall because they were like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. But the gist of it is was I refuse to participate in the blurb economy anymore. It should be thrown into the sun. Uh, And I was like, boy, I wish I could send this to my editor and be like, hi, can I just not like what if we just (laughs) didn't? And which is what this article is saying. Like, what if we all just didn't? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that's the crux of the problem, right? Because there's there's two things. It's how the actual blurbs appear on the book, like the shadow economy, the favor economy, mm-hmm. the unpaid labor economy of the blurbing ecosystem is one piece. And then there is the utility of the blurb. They're, they're related right. but separate questions, right? Yes. Because, you know, the, the piece does a pretty even-handed job of saying it seems to matter, but we don't know when and we don't know how yes. much and we don't because you can't A-B test the universe and so that's on and right. so forth. And it's one of those things that's like, it's my, my, my kids and I are watching the West Wing and there's this one episode about proportional response. You know, they bomb mm. us, we bomb them. And you say, he says about, it's like, well, it's, there's no, it's not virtuous. It's just what there is to be done. And I was like, oh, that's mm. an interesting idea. It's like, it's almost like table stakes. It's not that we know, but this is what people do. And it does matter some degree. Like I picked up, I have picked up a book because of a blurb before. Not going to lie, I have. Of course, we all have. There aren't, but all blurbs don't do that. Only some of them do. Only for some readers. But the problem is nobody knows which ones those are. So we got to do six blurbs for every book. (laughs) Yep, yep. 
And I will tell you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was, you, you go ahead. Well, the thing that I was confused about that came up in this Esquire article that turned that is like one of the final recommendations that I truly can't even fathom is that apparently some people want book blurbs during a the proposal stage, like before the book is even sold, which I literally can't. I don't even like we didn't we sold fit for the gods before it fully existed which is true i mean i guess if you're selling yeah. a novel you have the first draft you have the manuscript so and you've probably had early readers and, and you've probably you know, had early readers writer circles so like, and your MFA yeah, yeah i guess that's i guess you can do it that way but that also feels like you know because again if you're unless everybody in your mfa is already a new york times bestseller yeah. like you don't you are new here you probably don't have the connections, or well, you you're very lucky don't, and you But if you do, do maybe it's like, a differentiator. Maybe if well, I guess. like, you know, this is one of my students yes. or one of my friends or one of my mentees, yeah. and part of her proposal is going to come with a letter from me and a ready-to-go right. blurb, that makes it easier for the Oh, sure. That book is going to sell. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, it may be not for everybody. It, you know, it's not a requirement. No. Um, but if you can get one, it can it can certainly. But then, help in that you. case, the pressure is coming from your agent because you don't have an editor yet, and so you can't even rely on editorial favors. Yeah. In that case, you have right. to rely fully on your you own have network. To rely on. Yeah, that's right. And and it's all about what advantages do you have that someone yes. else might not to get your book. And that's what all of this is about, right? Because yeah, hundred percent. Versbo makes the point like. If you come from a prestigious MFA program that has a, it's it's more likely to have other published authors. And I, I guess that's just true. Like that's true for every business, right? Like that your social networks and other kinds of networking matter. Yes. I think this is one of those things that doesn't get talked about enough when we talk about diversity and inclusion is those networks yes. aren't as developed for those kinds of folks and those kinds of mm-hmm. voices. And that's touched on a little bit here and I think wisely so. But, you know, it, it matters. And I think what would you do different? Like how could you do it differently? If blurbs matter, like take that, which I feel like they do. Yeah. Um, books are hard to market because it's hard to preview and there's so many of them and this yes. is a social signal about what kind of book and the quality and the things that goes into it. Unless you're going to get rid of blurbs, which doesn't seem practical, is there some more sane way to do blurbs? Yeah. I mean, and I think first of all... I don't know all, how you do that. I don't know. How, I mean, I don't know how you would do it any more sanely. If you decrease the number... Like, we had to get six, five or six. Six seems to be That's the de facto. I was so looking on many. my shelf and it's like... And that doesn't, and that's not with a hundred percent matriculation rate. You're going to get a couple right. of no's and everything yes. else. Yeah. yeah. So you have to ask like twelve people. Let's say if you, assuming you get a fifty percent yes rate, which is actually very high, right? Like that would be mm. a very high success rate. Um, and then all of those people have to actually turn their blurb in by the deadline, the printing deadline, which is also yes. not going to happen. You're not going to get a hundred percent. So six is way too many. Like I think, okay, if blurbs matter that much, get two and get the best ones you possibly can. Like you shoot your shot, you make your wish list, you leverage every connection you have and you work your way down the list but if you only need two it is so much more manageable and i don't think that six versus two makes a significant difference like if there's two really killer blurbs on your book do you need four more i think that's a great point i think this is one of those we don't know if it matters but we're afraid of changing it because if it really matters we're going to screw yes Yeah, I think there's a conservatism to it. Frankly, I can understand, but I think you're right. I mean, when has the third blurb on the book been the one that's turned me around? I don't. I can't imagine um, the case of it. So I pulled two recent releases off my shelf. 
um, just to give a couple examples. So one thing that Vershbo mentions as a suggestion, and I, I think a lot of authors do this, if you're, and so I picked up The Librarianist by Patrick DeWittoff. I read it recently, mm. and he has enough novels out and has had enough good reviews where there are no blurbs on this. These are praise for Patrick DeWitt, and then yes. it's selections of reviews, and that's it. Yes. They, they don't need it. So yeah. this suggests to me a pecking order. Because mm-hmm. if you can do this, and here it is, his lineup is The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review, Poets and Writers, Vanity Fair. I, I guess there's one from Catherine Dunn, but that's not a blurb, A, because she's dead and didn't read this book. Mm. But it is previous praise, right? Mm-hmm. And then the Boston Globe. So the first thing that's interesting to me is you get you can infer the power ranking of authors yes. and publications by where they appear on blurbs. Yes. Um, the New Yorker pub, The New York Times Book Review is fascinating to me. Just, mm. just as a, but Dewitt's not blurbing. But on the other hand, um, I have the Great White Bard: How to Love Shakespeare While Talking About Race by um, Professor Farah Kareem Cooper. This is out from Viking. It's a hardcover commercial release. I had her on for um, first edition. You can go listen to that. She needs six blurbs. Yeah, you know, author of the, you know Emma Smith, author of Shakespeare, Adrian Lister, um, award-winning actor on Hustle. Like these are hard to get. Is this turning anyone around who's picking up? The great white part. Right. I just don't. But right. it's what you can do, so you do it. And I think that's, that's right. the essential. That's the essential prop. Can I propose a half baked idea to you? Yes. About this. So a lot of the people, a lot of the people, there's sort of a favor um, blurb, so that unto you a blurb shall be given. I think that's in the Bible, Jen. I think that's uh, in Ecclesiastes, <laughs> right? Some of what's happening is you do blurb so that you have. Um, for your book or your next book or whatever, you can participate in the favor That's economy, right? right? Yep. I think maybe we should formalize this where you get blurb credit and there's a database, <laughs> right? Where it's like, okay, Alexander Chi, one of the great blurbers or Gary Steingart, um, you have a hundred blurbs given so that you can then go call upon the, you know, you can summon a blurb because you've had so much goodwill. Let's just formalize what's actually happening. Where you've got mm. blurb credit, and if you got a blurb, you owe a blurb. And for everyone, you know, maybe you have to do five to get one. I don't know, but could you have some sort of clearinghouse? This is a stupid idea, but this is what de facto happens, right? Right. People who well, are more generous are going to blurb more often, and people who aren't aren't. And that kind of people do the mental sort of emotional math about this eventually. I don't know. It doesn't come out in the wash, but I feel like that's what actually happens in some way. Yes and no, because hmm. what is like nobody needs my blurb on their book. Like literally, I've yeah. never been you asked blurb to blurb up. a book. You got a blurb I've up. never been asked to blurb. Um, and I think it will be 10, many. 10,000 <laughs> <laughs> I would be, I mean, I, 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 would, ha- I would have very good boundaries is what okay. I'm saying because I have I been on you. the other side. I actually did once write a re- uh, email, a publisher feedback about a book that they ended up using mm. as a blurb, um, which I was really surprised by, but it was a smaller press, you know, and I was a bookseller and I was like, okay, cool. Um, um, but, but nobody like Sarah McLean doesn't need my blurb. Like, you know, Victor Laval doesn't need my blurb. <sighs> like these people point. don't need my blurbs. So I, I actually have zero blurb credits. I have a deficit of blurb credit right now because yeah. I have now 12 blurbs in my back pocket for t- across two anthologies and I have never blurbed a book. Yeah. So, you're, you're, and nobody wants, no one wants to buy your blurbs. Nobody wants for my, Northington blurbs. Yes. You know, my, it's like carbon offset. My dad have a carbon offset marketplace <laughs> isn't going to work for this. Huh. Right. Okay. So it's, hmm. it's also like, who do you want? Who's, who is desired? And that's why, you know, 
John Scalzi is turning down 95% of the requests he got. I mean, when I was a, I was an, a, a, an assistant to Lori House Anderson for a while, and I could not oh, tell you how many imagine. blurb requests she got in a week. Yeah. And she could not do even, you know, like a very small percentage of them were actually manageable and desired to be done. Um, and even forget, then... If you're doing it right, you got to read the book. Well, and, and also you are writing books, you're touring, you're teaching, you're working a day job if you have a day job. Like, when are you going to, when are you going to read these books? Hmm. When are you going to read them? So, you know, it's a, it's a very tricky, it's, it is a lot of labor. It is unpaid in, except for in credit, but the credit system does not get distributed does not equally. Work, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the other, it's like, well, it's unpaid labor, but you also, I think if you said, okay, well, Victor, just to use an example of all, yes. um, We'll give you the marketing. The, the publisher will give you five hundred bucks for your blur, but also people don't want that. They don't want the idea, right? That no, because that's to pay to play. Yeah, that's, that's pay right. to play. So you can't do that yeah. either. There's no nope. way for it not to be unpaid labor, right? Right. Exactly. It, it, to to fulfill the function, yep. it effectively is. So I I think I think you're onto something. Which the only real sort of actionable idea would be if we stipulate that blurbs matter to some degree. Is like could we just do forty percent fewer blurbs? Yeah. Per title. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that is a nice way of transitioning into is another piece about how many copies the average or some segment of the book sells. Because then once you start looking about how many books are published each year, <laughs> you realize the blurb problem that we yes. have, right? Um, so I'm going to put a pin in that for just a second. I'm going to do our second and, and last sponsor break before we get into the next one. But uh, hold hold that thought for a minute. So I saw this tweet floating around that Lincoln Michael is re- responding to in his Substack uh, Countercraft link in the show notes. All the links we talk about today, bookwrite.com slash listen. There is a there is a tweet that went around last year about how most this is just prose, most books sell fewer than twelve copies. And it for whatever reasons it reared its ugly head on the exact same day a year later um lincoln lincoln does and his whole piece is interesting and it's worth reading if you're interested in this kind of thing we're not going to go through it beat by beat but this upshot rebecca and i have talked about before and you know this too there is a whole cohort of books that sell way fewer copies than most general readers could possibly imagine i think that's the upshot for me here now it's not 12 and it's hard to measure but there's a lot of books that don't sell a lot of copies, Jen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a lot. And then the ones that do pay for all the rest. Yes. Um, the ones that sell millions and millions and millions of copies here. What do you want to say about this upside down pyramid of book sales? Is, there, did you, did you, is this a surprise to you to see it lay out? Does this jive with what you think? What's notable about, about Lincoln Michael's breakdown of like the falsity of this particular claim, but the underlying observation that there's a lot of books that really just don't reach that many people, even among traditionally published authors. Yeah, it's, I mean, I also, anthologies are like legendary for being very hard to do Mm. good sales numbers on. Like they don't, you know, they don't hit the bestseller list and like Neil Gaiman is in them or edited them. You know, it's very Mm. difficult to get your anthology um, on a bestseller list or to even earn out, which is, you know, when you actually earn back the money you got in your advance via book sales. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, this number that he comes up with uh, at the, towards the end of the piece, he says, I'd guess the average novel on a big five publisher is selling novel, 
note, mm-hmm. novel. We're talking novel. specifically about novels here. Um, because, yeah, it's very true. It d- really depends on what kind of books are you looking at. Because um, book can mean so many different things. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But, he, you know, he's guessing they sell somewhere in the thousands, like maybe closer to 1,000 than a million, but like it's not 12. And I think that's probably correct based on my own experience. It's like, yeah, a couple right. thousand is not unheard of. It's not great. You're going to have a harder time selling your next book, uh, depending on, you know, yeah. all of the different variables. It doesn't incline a publisher to want to, like, give you a lot of money. Um, but it is absolutely true that, you know, the books that sell, you know, your Stephen King's, your Neil Gaiman's, your Twilight's, your whatever, uh, they pay for everything else. And I don't know, you know, I, I think publishing has needed an overhaul for a long time. And I think looking at what independent presses are doing, because they are not going to have, you know, they don't have Stephen King. They don't have, you know, whatever the biggest, most selliest book of the moment is. And they are finding ways to do great work and publish really important things in small quantities sustainably. And I think you can't do the big five the way they do it without this model. Right. Yeah, Big four? How many point, is it right? now? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, you know, it's four now, right? Yeah, four? yeah. Four. Um, yeah, it's, the, the thing that even, so he cites a piece, um, I guess a bit of an analysis by Krista McLean at NBD, BookScan, BookScan being the, there is no gold standard for book sales. It's like the bronze standard, but there is no silver and gold right. uh, standard. It's like, it's what we have, kind of like the blurb. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes a point to say, you know, from his own sales statistics, they're not representative. Uh, yeah. Some multiple them thereof, but it does give you a breakdown. Uh, it says 14.7% or 6,700 books sold under 12 copies in a given year, according to BookScan's numbers. So even if that number is off by a factor of 20, that's still 240 copies for the 14% of the lowest. So there's a lot there's a lot that just don't find that much of an audience and I don't know, you know, I don't know that publishing fewer books, do people do publishers know to a high degree of certainty which of those books aren't going to sell 500 copies and they do them for other kinds of reasons or whatever? I don't know the answer to that. How surprised is a given publisher that something sells way, way below this. Or as you say, is the independent press saying, you know what? Um, we didn't give a huge advance, right? Right. We didn't spend, you didn't spend on the author tour. It's mm-hmm. paperback original. Right. It's not going to have four color prints. Like you could make something less expensive. Like the two examples yep. I gave are the Great White Bard, which is a sticker price of 30. I think I paid 32, oh God, uh-uh, $32 at Powell's. Mm-hmm. Um, straight up for the Great White Bard and uh, the librarianist about a pals for $30. Could you sell more copies that are a lot less expensive? Right. I don't know the answer. Like your book was paperback original. For um, this very reason. Yeah. For this very reason because it's so expensive and maybe you can sell more copies. This gives mm-hmm. you two bites at the Apple to have the hardcover, right? You get the, the initial release, yes. you get the paperback later. I don't know. It's shocking though. And then you think about half of these books, let's say half of these books need six blurbs. So right, we're looking exactly. at 25,000 copies that need 25,000 individual titles, um, according to this is the books and the unique ISBNs that McLean studies here, 25,000 copies that need 25,000 titles that need six blurbs apiece. So you're looking at mm-hmm. 130,000 blurbs. Yep. 
for these kinds of books. For one year's worth of For books. one year's worth of books. One year's worth of front, front list. Front list. Front list books, yeah. Um, and that's a lot. It's a lot that goes into it. It's a lot that yeah. goes into how many books are out there and how much work um, it really takes. That doesn't show up on like a spreadsheet, right? All the no. blurbs and everything else that goes into it. I yeah. guess I was, I was, I mean, if you look at, if you don't look at the, the the actual absolute numbers here and you kind of look at them through Vaseline-covered glasses to say they're approximately representative, the thing that struck me is the, t- the top end of the curve is very, very small. 0.4% sold over 100,000, yeah. 0.7%. And 0.4% is 163 books sold 100,000 copies or more. It's not, it's like, I could read those in a year. I could read right. all of the books. I mean, I'd have to put my back into it, but that's a number that I could put up in a given year. Yeah. You, you go to 0.7%, you double. And you go to 2.2%, you're up. You're still only up to 1,000 books for those right. 2.2% that sold 20,000 copies or more. So I don't know what to say about it, except it's a reminder for, for someone like me who's more on the consumer. I'm kind of weird. I'm most, I'm, as a reader, I'm mostly as a consumer. That most right. of these books that I think about, that I talk about, that I'm interested in, they just don't, they're not going to sell that many copies. And that's just right. the reality of it. Um, and yet people want to be published. Even yes. If, even if there's yeah. in front of them. <laughs> Why do we do this again, Jeff? I have to remind Because people me. like to, I guess. I mean, yes. it's, it's hard to admit, it's hard to undervalue the, the people just would like to write and make books. Yes. You know? Yeah. You can't Which again, yourself. You told me this. No, you're saying I did. I told you. Anthology, and I'm going to yeah. do another one. And you did. And now you're already thinking about another one. So you I got am. the bug. I uh, do. All evidence. I do. Mm. Yep. Okay, let's see from here. Oh, another favorite topic of yours, Goodreads. (laughs) I haven't been on Goodreads in 100 million years. Uh, Um, This is a piece in The Walrus, a very nice piece by um, Taja Eisen, who had her own book. She's an audiobook narrator. She's a regular columnist for them about the the, the anti-patterns, I guess is a very charitable mm. way of putting it. Mm-hmm. I think your opening line is representative. Um, in fact, it is possible to have a decent time on Goodreads. You just have to ignore everything about the way the site is designed and how you're supposed to, <laughs> to use it. Again, more of a, more of a, um, more of a uh, reason to turn our head to Goodreads uh, right now. I guess I forget, like you forgot about Dune 2, I forget Goodreads exists. Um, yeah. because I'm not a user of it necessarily. It was a big deal 10 years ago, and it yep. seems to have found a place as maybe like the blurb, useful and important, but no one knows why exactly, and people are afraid of abandoning it or just sort of ignoring it completely. Jen, tell me about your own experience with Goodreads. What What do you think of this piece, and what are your meta thoughts about the state of Goodreads and how people use it? Yeah, I mean, there's some great pieces that actually other Book Riot writers have yep, written about Goodreads. Like if you just like put Book Riot and then Goodreads into a search engine, you will find them. Um, lots of very interesting and thoughtful examinations of you know the parasocial relationships and how they go wildly wrong sometimes between writers and readers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the pressure of the Goodreads challenge, the pressure of you know having your reading habits you know socially monitored and then of course there's review bombing and you know all of these things i highly recommend if you if you like also are like what's what is up with goodreads like read this piece it's great Mm -hmm. um and think about it you know and if you're a user i mean i think i think that 
And this is an argument that is not unique to me. I read it on Book Riot. Yeah, <laughs> Goodreads. Great website. Ever heard of it? Yes, yes. Uh, Goodreads should be. You should check it out, Jeff. Um, mm-hmm. Good. Good. What Goodreads should be is for readers. Like, yeah. if you just look at the ability to track what you've read, find out about books that are similar to it, see what your friends are reading, and recommend books to your friends, like, that's a beautiful thing. And that's where it came from, yeah. right? Like, that's where it came from. And, you know, okay, you want to rate and review. Like, it's important that people get to share their opinions about things. Does it, is it important that it be in the public square? You can argue that lots of different ways. But I think, you know, and R.F. Kuang makes this point um, and is quoted as making this point in the Taja Eisen piece, you know, it's, it's healthy to have public discourse about titles. Now, when publishers insist on using Goodreads as a marketing sales and like tool to predict how much a, how well a book is going to do and then require authors to interact with readers on Goodreads to boost mm. those things, like to boost getting your book on to be read shelves, to boost good reviews, that's where it all falls apart. Because it's not it's not just for one thing anymore. And you're forcing all of these interactions in and you're, you know, increasing the pressure on the parasocial relationships or, you know, specifically creating them in order to try to leverage them. And it all goes to hell in a handbasket because of course it does. There's no way it can't. There's a tragedy of the commons piece to it, right? Yeah. The space that in an ideal world could be a you know, a, a, a discourse, an agora, a public yeah. forum for yeah. people to discuss a particular title, particular titles at large. But because of the thinking that it matters, that Goodreads matters, and that the Goodreads page for a book is an important piece of real estate, right? Yes. For a book's life and yes. the author's mental health, you know, all mm, the things that yeah. go into it. Like that's a, it's probably... Is it second to the Amazon homepage? It also has reviews. Oh, 100%. Like yeah, yeah, it's like probably the next, even more than the author's yeah. page or the publisher's page for the book. Yeah. It is a place where messaging around that book is happening. Mm-hmm. And that messaging has a value. And of course, people are going to vie for it in yes. all kinds of ways. Yep. And I don't know a way around that. I don't know a way around that where someone who is a, a book nerd in... Um, you know, Tucson, Arizona can have a Goodreads page and have a social networking where she can give her thoughts on Ann Patchett and Nettie Okafor and other kinds of people that doesn't then become a contested space by people wishing to do ill to that book or people wanting to monetize that. I just don't know a way around. I don't know how you do that. seems like an impossible situation. I think, again, you know, the problem of information overload and like too much happening on single spaces and one space being relied upon to be everything to all people is the issue so like yeah i have i have storygraph i use it to track my reading because i love their visuals and pie charts i don't have to make my own pie charts anymore jeff i still have my own reading spreadsheet but they make the pie charts for me now and their algorithm is actually really fun to play with um and because it is not as popular as goodreads it has a very different feel and i have found the reviews very helpful because again publishers aren't 
caring about Storygraph. Authors are like keeping an eye on it, but like not, you know, you can't make an author page, I don't think, on Storygraph, or at least I haven't seen that as an option. Um, and it's there, it's the stakes are not, the stakes are personal. The stakes are not professional there yet. Right. Um, and I think if you have enough of those places, I actually don't think that like, different spots you know uh what what is the word i want here um different nexuses of attention yeah yeah, like right yeah let people have a distributed thank you distributed like let people have different ones like it's nice if all of your friends are on the same one so find that one and do it with your friends and then maybe you'll meet some other people that way if that's a thing you're looking for or just have a private account somewhere depending on what you want to use it for but like i think it's okay for us not to all be on the same one because when everybody's on the same one that one has to serve all purposes and nothing can do that nothing can reasonably do that the reason the pickpockets are on the subway is because if there's everybody right right exactly yeah yeah Yeah. if you're out walking on a side street at two o'clock in the afternoon with you know only a handful of people around it's harder for someone to take advantage of the the crowdedness of it yeah and i don't know that the the other thing that this piece i don't know that really talks about because i read it yesterday is like how much the Goodreads stuff matters. Like if you have yeah. a review bomb or you have awesome Goodreads reviews, it feels a little bit like the blurb to me insofar yes. as it's so hard to sell books, I guess going back to story number two, mm-hmm. that you want to try to control everything you can control, yes. even if you're not sure that it matters. Because it might. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It, and Goodreads can, can make a book. Goodreads can absolutely make a book, and it can break um, a book. Girl on the train, I remember. There's like yeah, maybe that that was a specific one where it wasn't just Goodreads. There's a specific reviewer on Goodreads, Mm, mm -hmm. and I still don't. I never got the smoking spreadsheet about that. To be honest with you, about like how people knew that, Um, but it has its own momentum, and like a lot of social media networks, for some people like you, and I think probably more. Like me, for honest, like um, having it be a little less crowded is a feature, not a bug. But yeah. for some people, they want to be where all the people are. Yes. Um, and they want their review to matter and they want a mm-hmm. bunch of people to see it and they want to be a part of the discourse around yes. the ninth book in the whatever series. Um, yep. And that's just a very difficult place to be in. And then you layer on the Goodreads is not only a for profit company, but it's owned by a little company called Amazon. Mm-hmm. And who knows, right? Who, yep. who knows what they do with it and what they don't do with it? I think my base case for what Amazon would have done with Goodreads when they bought it, oh, 2014, 2013, mm-hmm. I was wrong on the downside. Like, I don't know what they've done. I, it looks it looks the same. Yeah, it does not look Again, I'm not a heavy user of it, but like, what is Goodreads doing a lot differently than they did 10 years I'll ago? tell you, the algorithm ha- is now... The algorithm for your feed if you have They've a, put have their thumb... On uh, the recommendations algorithms heavily for so, Amazon titles, or it's a marketing yes. thing for, uh, for hard to stuff. say. I mean, there's definitely say. they've monetized it. You, there's all kinds of marketing opportunities, mm, right? Um, right? They are in some cases a competitor for Book Riot, like with like yes, giveaways and stuff like that. Advertising um, dollars. Yeah, advertising dollars. Uh, but also, I mean, we highlighted this when we were doing that little get booked experiment, um, human versus algorithm. Yes, it used to be like with every platform when it gets big enough that. And it's worth something and you can put your finger on the scales, but then you destroy the utility that it had for people in the first place. So it used to be like, yeah, with everybody like, you know, uploading their shelves and rating things and, you know, being very honest about what they liked and didn't like, you could get some really interesting recommendation algorithms 
going for what else you might like as a reader. But now that algorithm is, you know, uh, clearly been taken yeah. over and who knows how they're waiting what and what you can pay for and what you can't pay for and the but the recommendations you get are laughable at this point yeah. laughable they're very I mean, bad. truly they're, very they're bad. hilarious so like that's what amazon has done they're taking yeah. all that data about what they're you know you know they're hoovering in every mm-hmm. piece of data what how many stars you gave it did you forward it to a friend how which shelf did you add it to and they're doing whatever you know they do with that data and and then they're tweaking the algorithm we do, I mean, this is a little, I'm not going to quote anyone, but we do hear that, and you can understand why from an advertising perspective, we want to target people who are fans of X title, because this mm-hmm. is a comp title, or we think those people might like that. Um, I have my own doubts about that kind of targeting and utility for that, but I have motivated reasoning to say so, but let's <laughs> put that a pin in that. I guess the other thing I was wondering about, and Goodreads, since it's a wholly owned subsidiary of um, uh, the Rand Corporation, I mean Amazon, um, mm. They're never going to tell us about. Are there more people using Goodreads? Is this site right. growing? Is it like what are yeah. the other sort of utility metrics um, going on to it? I think there's a good pe- the, one of the one of the subtle points that Isin makes here is it's nominally a space for readers, but Goodreads wants authors to do co- Q and A's and have yes. their own author pages and host giveaways and do other kinds of stuff. And there is a there is a blanket. Um, recommendation I think is true for every author to not engage with reviews on Goodreads. Yes. I don't think it's going to end well. No. Nope. Maybe if you only said thank you for taking the time, maybe that's the only way to do it. I wouldn't even that. do that, honestly. I wouldn't even do that. No. But any kind of effort to push back on any kind of response, Mm-mm. no one cares. No one's going to be on your side. I'm sorry to say. Maybe you're into, maybe your immediate family, but people <laughs> really don't like authors coming in and telling a reader they're wrong or they got some, mm-hmm. even if they said as as and says here says some pretty nasty stuff yeah there is le- there is community standard language on goodreads for author responding to that stuff so the differential responsibility here is pretty wild yeah and you know that's those are because of decisions um that goodreads has made i want to get to a couple other stories real quick yes. it's funny you use the dr o term because one of the words added to dictionary.com there's a link in the show notes added 556 words i highlighted five of my favorite Ooh, um, tell and me. one of them was pessimize yes and pessimize is the optim it's the opposite of optimize to sort of make it worse intentionally yes. and i think that's the, the other that's the maybe um, Apple podcast, Jeff doesn't have to edit it out friendly term. for. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I did one myself earlier, so it's okay. But pessimize, I'm going to use that. So go check yeah. that out. Did you have a chance to look at that list at all? I asked you to, but I didn't know if you had a chance. To I did. I did. Yeah. I mean, I live in Philadelphia, so it's oh, fun. Oh, John. To, I, it's fun to see them playing with John. You know, yes. I think um, they're obviously Do you feel like, like you can use John oh, in no. casual conversation? Absolutely not. Okay. I have not. Oh, no, I know exactly how it's used, but I am oh. not allowed to use it. I have not lived here long enough. I may never have lived here long enough. Right. And I, but I love hearing it actually. It's one of my favorite things when it is used correctly and casually. Like you can tell when somebody's putting it on. Like right. they're like, oh, I'm going to use the word John in a so sentence. And you're like, yeah. yeah, exactly. When it pops up as it should, you know, just as part of speech because it's part of your speech patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I delights me every time. I also was laughing about shower orange. <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> why? I've heard of shower 
beer, actually. That's been a thing yeah. I've known about for many years. But uh, Shower Orange was new to me. Um, and then there were just some really fun ones uh, farther. I love kin keeping, Jeff. Yes. I love kin keeping. I highlighted keeping. that one. I, I love that. kin keeping is. Yeah. Uh, kin keeping is the labor involved in maintaining and enhancing family ties, which includes organizing social occasions, remembering birthdays, sending gifts, etc. I think this has been part of the discussion, especially around, you know, if you're in a heterosexual relationship yes. and you are the female in the relationship, you do a lot of emotional labor on behalf of your family or your spouse, which often is very centered around kin keeping. Do you remember the birthdays? Do you remember the mm-hmm. anniversaries? Do you buy the presents, etc., etc.? Um, but I like that this is divorced from, you know, the gender dynamics and it just acknowledges that this is a thing that in- requires labor. I really right. appreciate it having its own term because it can be a joyful labor or yes. it can be a really terrible draining labor. And mm. I like how neutral and ungendered this is. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I was thinking I hadn't quite a thought in terms of the ungendered and neutral because I was I was thinking, too, it's like, Oh, yeah, some additional specificity around the kinds of emotional labor is useful. I yes, like. Like yes, that this too. This is one particular kind of it. I'm sure there's others if we thought about it, and maybe there's other terms for it. And that this is, kinkeeping sounds more positive. Emotional labor, I don't know that it has a pejorative, it's not really a pejorative sense of it, but it's, not it's in- generally used in context where something is a foul. Yeah. Right? No one's like, oh, I got to do some emotional labor today. Right. People don't use it. People don't tend to use it. Use it that way. So um, that was, so check that out there. One last story I want to hit quickly before yes. we bounce for the day. This broke late last week. Um, this is a piece in Publishers Weekly by um, Ed Nowatka. A judge, um, a federal judge, Alan Albright, blocked the Texas book ban law. This is HB 900. Um, this is the one where basically requires book vendors to review and rate books for sexual content under a vaguely articulated standard. This is verbatim from uh, Ed's piece. As a gizzard of doing business, base, this is all an attempt to get books out of kids' hands. I mean, yeah. you know, we know we've had this, we've had Kelly on, we've done pieces, yes. we know all about this. This is one of those moments where we kind of knew this would happen and hoped that the federal courts would step in mm-hmm. and restore some sense of reality to what's actually yes. happening here. Um, so a, a good piece of news. I, I don't know enough about the inner workings. Is this thing dead? It can be appealed? It, they're going to sure appeal. It can be. They will yeah. appeal. How often mm-hmm. are these things held up? I don't know right. enough about this, but this does suggest... Like we like we do in this representative republic that a state just can't go complete. Well, they can. There are sometimes checks and consequences to yes. a state doing something that exceeds the purview um, of what we want to do constitutionally and federally. I'm not sure if there's much yes. else to say about that, but we've been following. No, do you see anything just else that- here, Jen, you wanted to mention? Yeah, just may the plaintiff's efforts succeed. I mean, this is this is a scary one. And it if it you know, if they manage to get an appeal that hinges on states rights, which is it sounds like what they're trying to do. The defendants are trying to counter that, like states have the power to do this and nobody can complain. Um, That would be a huge precedent setter if it got to that point. So we I just can only 
hope and pray and write letters to people <laughs> uh, that that it does not get to that point. Um, but yeah, so fingers very crossed. I think that's our show this week. As always, yeah. you can find uh, the show notes at bookwrite.com slash listen. Go check out the winter preview draft on Patreon if that's the kind of thing you're interested. If you are if you miss me and Rebecca talking, um, you can go hear us talk about the It Books of September over on First Edition, wherever podcasts are available. Jen, thank you so much. A pleasure, as always. Yes. Thank you for letting me soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I welcome all the soapboxes. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.